Welcome back to another episode of the Launch Day Podcast. Here on our show today, we have a really awesome guest. His name is Solon Q, and he's going to be sharing with us some amazing stories, some insights, some great things to, to talk about and to share. Solon, how you doing, man? Very well. Very happy to be here. That's good, man. That's good. Well, look, listen, um, we've been talking for, you know, I don't know how long now uh, before we've even started the show and you've already had so much value and information to share. But to kick things off, did you want to introduce yourself, you know, where you've come from, what business you run, what's the name of your business? Give us the whole rundown of of who you are. Yeah. So um, currently I run my own law practice. It's called Royer Mace Lawyers. Yep. I only started early this year around March, but I've been practicing as a lawyer and it been in the legal industry for about 10 years now. Nice. Uh, started off as a high school teacher, decided I want to do a little bit more and somehow ended up going into law, working in it, and then suddenly just decided to start my own law firm. That's awesome. So you're brand new. So March this year, you got started. Yes. And how are you new. finding that? Like, you know, obviously starting a business is, is already a big, a big leap, right? It's really frightening for a lot of people. How have you found it so far? I have to say I'm finding it quite good, quite good. Okay. Um, I maybe because I had I started off with some low expectation. I was expecting to be eating cup noodles for the rest of the year. <laughs> yeah. But it turned out to be a lot better than that. So. Oh it's, wow. It's been it's been great. So are you telling me I picked the wrong career? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like oh man, everyone says I should be a lawyer. You know, they they think that'd be really good in you know in a courtroom and things like that, just because of how I'm able to articulate things. Um, you know, so I don't know. Maybe maybe there's a bit of a time for a career change. You're hiring, maybe or definitely. If it's you, definitely. I love it. I love it. No good stuff. So from March until now, what's that? Seven months, I think. Now you're running. About, about six, seven months, yeah. yeah I think it didn't months. really kickstart until like April, but... Yeah? Yeah, so... What was the disparity between March and April? March was... I took my time setting it up, you know, getting all the, the website done, you know, slowly building it up. Mm. And by April, it it kind of really started picking up with terms of the legal work that was coming in. Mm. Yeah, so that's kind of the main difference between March and April. So a lot of people that are like listening to this program, right... It's funny, I, I just looked out the window as if we had an audience. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the people that are listening to the podcast, you know, they're either in business or starting a business or looking or they're investors looking to invest in businesses, right? So there are key demographics of people that listen. And it does make me wonder because I know that a lot of the people that are at home in the car, wherever they may be, in the office, in the shower. Someone's told me they've listened to the podcast in the shower. Good for them. So an hour and a half shower seems like a long time though. Maybe a bath is better suited. Uh, But what was that differentiating factor? Like, you know, 
a lot of people say, oh, it's so hard to get clients and to get started. I mean, you know, it sounds like you got on your feet pretty well in the first month. So what was that? What was the difference for you that other people seem to have challenges with? What, what is it that you did to, to go and get all those clients and all that work? I think I have to say I'm pretty lucky in a sense where ever since I started working as a lawyer, I've been developing like a, like a following, like a client base. Mm. Um, a lot of right now, pretty much 100% of my work is all from word of mouth either from existing clients, previous clients, friends and family, uh, referral partners as well. Mm. Uh, and when I say referral partners, it's not like I give them any kickbacks. Mm. It's all because I've worked with them in the past. They like what I do. I like what they do. And we have this mutual uh, want to help each other. Gotcha. Gotcha. Fair enough. Hmm. So it's referrals. I'm just thinking about this, right? A lot of people, they have to do the hard yards. They don't have that following. They don't have, they haven't actually spent that time building up those relationships, right? And so like a lot of them and a lot of those people that I've worked with in the past, I've told them, I'm like, hey, you know what? Go grab some flyers and go door knocking. It's called cold canvassing, you know, knock on their door. Hi, my name is, this is what I do. This is how we do it. And this is what you'll get by working with me. So, you know, I have a pitch formula that is, you know, we buy that, we, what we do, that, sorry, buy how we do it, that, the outcome that they get. It's the fastest way to, to figure out a pitch to get someone's attention. And so I'm teaching people to go out there and say, yeah, just cold canvas and, and get out there and do it. Because that's how I did it, right? Uh, you know, fun story, actually, I might share with you. you. You might like this. I worked at a car dealership in marketing. This was many, many years ago, right? So I was in business before, took a break, got into... Uh, you know, a car dealership in a marketing role. Now, on my last day, I wasn't supposed to be there that day, but it was all cash money, right? So they, you know, they, were, they were, had a little envelope waiting for me on the Friday. But I had a meeting, right, that I had set with an accounting firm to do a couple, a bit of work for them it was about two, $3,000. I had about $5,000 worth of commissions in this envelope, right, ready for me to take home. And the guy that was the owner of that at the time, he turned around to me and said, no, nah. he goes, I'm not giving you the money unless you stay for the whole day. And if you leave, I'm not going to give you the money. So you can imagine a situation like that, right? Like, seriously, dude, you know what I mean? Like, it was kind of crazy. And um, I had to make a decision. And I went, you know what? Screw that. Oh, I want to get in my car and go. Like I'd rather take two thousand, three thousand dollars from a new client than and build a relationship with them than not have that client and you know and just be happy with five grand. So I gave it up. I was like, no, nah, jumping in the car. I'm going to this meeting. So I got there while I was there. So it was two, three grand was the pitch, and I was just so determined to actually you know, bump up that sale, add up, add more into there to try and make back my five grand, right? That I had just let go of. And like, especially considering I had already earned it, right? I ended up walking out of there with a $4,000 sale. So it was close. But then what I did, because part of it, what they, what I was doing for them was organizing some business cards to be printed for them. So then I thought about it. Mind you, I was like maybe about 20 years old at the time, 19, 20, right? Closer to 19. Yeah, no, 19. I was 19 years old at the time. 
And I went, I'm going to go knock on every person's door in Liverpool, in New South Wales, right? Not the UK. <laughs> <laughs> but in Liverpool, New South Wales, knocked on every business's door. I did not care who they were, where they were, what they were, or what they were doing. I just went out selling business cards as a print broker, essentially. How did that go? Mate, let me tell you, it, I have to share the strategy I used. Because I went to the first couple, no bites. But what I did was, is I went to these guys and I said, and I started changing my pitch. And this is important for everyone listening too. I started changing my pitch and I started saying to people, I've just gotten a whole bunch of orders for business cards, but, and I don't print them myself. I was being honest about it. So I don't print them myself, but what's happening is, is because everyone's getting business cards by the thousands, if you join us, we can actually get better discounts on the business cards so you can get your business cards cheaper. And so then they went, oh, so we're all working together to, you know, to, to push down the price. TeamU actually, the, you know, TeamU app. Tell me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what they did, right? So partner up with a friend and then you push down the price. And if you partner up with more friends, the price gets cheaper. Wow. That's how they actually scale their business really, really fast. So I took that. So that same strategy, uh, you know, however many years ago now, um, I took that strategy and that day, and I'll, I'll, I'll admit it's revenue, not profit, but revenue that day was closer to 9,000. Wow. So we went from $5,000 being walked away from to $9,000 in sales in a single day by giving that up, right? That's amazing. That's a lot of money for a 20-year-old as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, it wasn't profit. You know, they're still having to print the business cards and everything else, but there was a good margin there that, that made me really, really happy and content that I was able to do it. So that's my advice to people, right? You, you were like, yeah, I built up those relationships over time. Um, but if, you know, like me, 19 years, years of age, how many business relationships do I have? Not many, you know? So I, I had to do a lot of the hard yards to be able to do it. Now, in comparison, I did it in one day versus someone else taking a bit more time. But I think it's really important to highlight what you said, right? If you're in a job right now, if you're working for a firm, if you're working for a small business, no matter where you're working, would you agree that it's important to start fostering those relationships? For sure. It's, you need to start fostering those relationships, even at a junior level. Mm. It's not something that you work, like speaking just from a perspective of a lawyer, um, building client base is not something you do when you reach partner level. It's not when you get to a senior level, that's when you start thinking about where do I get the work? It's like it actually starts from a very, very junior level because you start dealing with the client, you start building a relationship with them and you want it to be so good to the point where when they have something, they come back to you, not to, the, not to your boss. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. See, I'm just trying to think of that, put that into practice, right? Because a lot of people still call me. Like I'm a, you know, as Aaron Sansoni says, right? Like I'm a number two right now. We're trying to move more into a number three, but I tend to keep getting the phone calls. And, uh, but now we're starting to see, you know, Linda get more calls or Nora get more calls and, and the client's dealing directly with them. And, you know, I'd say it is, especially Nora. You've met Nora already, right? It's lovely. She's lovely. Yeah, yeah. She's not too hard to get along with, right? So, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense because you're absolutely right. The junior, no matter what position you are, you do need to, you do need to foster those relationships and create those relationships with people. And it just takes time. Like you just got to 
be genuine. I think that's the main thing. Like if, mm. if you try too hard, it just doesn't come natural. So if you just get the work done, um, treat people with respect, it will naturally happen. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get that. I'm trying to think of like other strategies. Do you think it was just relationships, you know, that, that you had that that kind of built you up or got you that all that work in the first month? Or do you think there was more to it than just that? I think there's the the relationship definitely gave a big um, kickstart to it. Mm. But you still always have to continuously build new relationships and um, find new opportunities. Uh, that didn't say I didn't go out and do your method as well, where, you know, introducing myself to someone brand new, letting them know what I do and mm. what sort of result I try to achieve for them. Definitely did a lot of those uh, in the first, even now. Even now, I still do, I still do that now. Um, just as an example, uh, over the weekend, I went to the property expo. Yeah. And I spoke to real estate agents. I told, spoke to mortgage brokers. I even spoke to other lawyers as well, you know, Lawyers are also another form of avenue for work too. So it's just a matter of talking to them, getting to know what they do and seeing what sort of value I can give them. So I never go up to them and ask, hey, can you refer me clients? I go, hey, what do you do? Is there anything I can help you? This is something that I can do for their business directly. How can I be resourceful to you, right? Yeah, because yeah, I think, would you agree that that's probably one of the main things to consider with all of these is just ensuring that when you are communicating with people that you're providing value? For sure, 100%. If you're not providing value, then there's very little reason for them to contact you other than a transaction. Mm. Yeah. Mm, 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 mm. So what about you in terms of your clients? Like, you know, thinking more about, when, look, when I go and look for a solicitor, right, and there's a few with different areas of expertise that I go to, one of the main things that I'm looking for is a level of an interpersonal relationship, if that makes sense, right? So I, I kind of don't want, and I, I'm sure many out there can agree with me, as much as you want, okay, here's the work, go get it done and let me know when it's done, is somewhat convenient. Um, I feel like anything to do with law and legals, for me, I want to have that interpersonal relationship with my solicitor because then it feels, it gives me a lot more reassurance knowing that I feel like I'm on the same page and I fully understand what's happening because it is obviously my own, you know, my own uh, assets, financial matters, business matters and things like that that are in question. So for me, it's really important to have that interpersonal relationship. So I mean, what, what's, what's that with you and what's the relationship with you and your clients? I think the relationship is more to do with, <clears throat> to do with trust. If... You're looking for a lawyer because you need them to help you with something. It could be a, something as simple as a transaction. And usually it's an expensive transaction. Uh, sometimes you go to a lawyer if you had um, something, an injury, and you need someone to fight for you. So it really comes down to picking a lawyer or someone that you can trust. And that's where the interpersonal part comes in. You can find a lawyer that really knows what they do, can spit out the law for you, but if you don't feel like you can trust them or if they have your best interests at heart, you most likely may not go to them. You'll go to someone who you feel like you can trust. Mm, I get you. And so like, so for me, the challenge is always hiring, right? And uh, you can ask any of my staff, right? The, the actual hiring process uh, is very different for me than it is for most people. 
And I always try and find people that really align with similar values and, and things like that. So how do you find staff that are, you know, that are going to need that same philosophy that you have in terms of how you treat your clients and how they can trust you? Like how, are you, how do you plan on finding more staff that, that when you do grow enough that you're employing if you're not already, you know? Yeah, so finding staff, that's interesting because um, I'm actually uh, going ahead of schedule where I'm looking to hire someone somewhere between part-time to full-time hours as a solicitor. Um, how I would look for staff is looking at their character rather than their knowledge because with legal knowledge they can learn it i can teach it they'll get it eventually but when it comes to the character that's not something you can really teach them that's something that they develop mm. as they as they grow up mm. so it's very important i think to like you said look for look for the the look at the character of that person for hiring and and I think sometimes like you're not going to find another person that's exactly the same as you. You know, you can find people that shares a, a portion of your value. But I think it comes down to the the manager or the boss displaying and displaying those values so that it trickles down to everyone else. Because mm. if you because you need to be able to um, carry those values so that people that follow you can also pick that up mm. and 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 embody those values mm. yeah i guess you i get you so my yeah it's really funny actually so and i, I remember linda laughing at this and i'm only saying her name out loud so much because she's in the room she's our camera operator today for everyone that's listening and um when i hired her i, t I told her straight up i said you know what? i said i kind of like you know this interview so far um i said that you know i had people that I've interviewed I've actually got like two two rules for interviewing people um the first one is voicemails if their voicemail is something absolutely ridiculous especially if you're looking for a job then it's I, I'm out I can't you know do voicemails especially if it's like you know oh hi I don't listen especially if there's attitude you can hear it in their voice I don't listen to voicemails so send me a text. Otherwise, I probably won't call back. Thanks. Wow. Yeah, I've got it. I've literally gotten candidates with the voicemails like that. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not hiring you. You know what I mean? Like, what if I had to have a customer call you? Even if you're not customer facing majority of the time, but let's say you were working on a project that required a customer to interact with you just to clear something up, get some clarity, whatever it is. And that's your voicemail. Could you imagine? You know what I mean? And then in today's day and age, imagine trying to ask them to change it. Like, no, it's my personal phone. But, well, you know, yeah. So there's that. Second rule is, um, especially for hiring female staff, which is predominantly uh, the majority of our staff roster is, is female. If in the interview, and I know, I know that like some people say, oh, no, it's not. But I know for a fact that it's fake is when female staff say, uh, you know, like, so by they put on this really dragged on long kind of, you like I said, this high pitched fake voice that's not really them. And they're like in the, you know, like all that kind of stuff, you know what I mean? And it just burns me. I just sit there and I'm like, I, you know, I don't know if for some reason I just feel like that type of person. And, you know, I have hired someone that's like that before. And I find that 
I've been burned a little bit because they tend to have different attitudes towards their work. Oh. So, you know, they're the type of people that go, oh, well, it's after five o'clock. So, you know, you can't call me now, um, but I can talk to you at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. So their attitude is nine, five, that's it. Wow. You know what I mean? So like, that's just been my experience personally, right? And like you said, right, having someone genuine. And so if, if that's how you present yourself, I only want someone who's genuine as well. You know, can we have a conversation where you're not putting on a show and, and just be very open about, you know, your flaws, vulnerabilities, the things that you're good at, things that you're bad at. Covering both sides uh, is really, really important for hiring. So I don't know, I'm, I'm sharing some of my experience with you. Maybe it might help you too, you know? Definitely. I think I can take a thing or two from, from that. Absolutely. Right now, I just want to hear Linda's voicemail. Yeah, <laughs> actually, you know what? She's always answered my calls, so I'm not sure what her voicemail is, to be quite frank. But it's a, it's a good question. I'm going to put that to the test now. Yeah. But for sure. And look, I think one thing for me as well, I've in terms of solicitors and, and lawyers, right, I've been burned in the past by them too. I, I went to a, a law firm in Sydney just to get a quote. Um, and it was a property-related matter. It was a commercial lease dispute. And I wanted to send a letter of demand. And so I had reached out to them and I said, oh, you know, um, can you send me this quote, et cetera, and so on. And believe it or not, they came back to me with this prize. So they asked, they said, oh, can, can we please see the lease agreement so we can give you a more meaningful estimate of our costs? That's the words they used. And I, I said, yeah, sure, no problem. I'll send you the, 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 the lease. Sent it over. They came back. They said, yeah, it'll be $450 to send a letter of demand. And I kind of went, mm-hmm, $450 for a letter. And realistically, it's like three sentences. Like, I don't see the value in $450 for writing three sentences. Do you know what I mean? So I get the representation part if they contact you, etc. But then bill me if they're going to contact you and whatever else. Or offer that as part of the service and say, well, for $450, we'll also take a phone call up to 30 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever. You know, where's the value in what you're providing apart from writing a letter and sending it with the chances are that they don't actually respond anyway because only a letter of demand. It's not like a court summons or, you know what I mean, or a statement of liquidated claim. It's it's just a, a letter, right? So they came back. About a week later, after I said, nah, sorry, it's that, that, quite, that quote's a bit too high for what I want. They came back a week later with an $800 bill. How did that happen? Well, because, and I'm not sure if the law's changed since then, but at the time, the, there, there's literally, uh, I can't remember the exact act uh, like off the top of my head, but there is an act for solicitors, lawyers, barristers, and it's a professional conduct or professionals. Uh, you know, it's like the Business Services Agents Act, but for, for solicitors okay. and lawyers, right? <clears throat> so under that act, if the bill is less than $880 ink GST or equivalent to, they don't have to disclose their costs. So you could pick up, this is for me, right? So for me, I'm like, I, so that means realistically, I could pick up the phone to a solicitor or a lawyer and call them and speak to them for 10 minutes. And even though it was just a general chit chat, you could charge me for that 10 minute phone call because that's what the law says. The law says you can bill me without disclosing your costs if it's under $800. 
I might just debunk a bit of myth about that. Go for um, it. I think what you're referring to is the requirement for lawyers to give their clients a cost agreement. So if the estimated bill, including uh, so professional fees and disbursement is under 750, then lawyers don't need to give a, don't have to give a cost agreement. Yes. Whereas if it's over, then they have to give you a cost agreement. Now, in terms of that, that chat that that lawyer had with you, I guess it comes down to one thing. Did they tell you that they're going to bill you for those, for those calls, for those talks or that advice? Mm. And, and, in, and in these circumstances, all I can tell for your listeners is that the cost agreement, say, uh, cost agreement and cost disclosure deals with how the lawyer is going to charge you, what work they're going to do, and in the event that you dispute their bill, what are the steps you can take to deal with that? Mm. You can go directly to law society, make a complaint, or get a cost assessor to assess that bill. So uh, I definitely do not uh, approve of the practice of not disclosing that, number one, you're doing work and you're charging them, and how you're going to bill them. Yeah. So that's definitely not the, you know, not the right way to go about it. Well, they, they actually put a statement of claim in. So they took me to court for it. Wow. Right? So they took me to court for it. For 880? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they took me to court for it. It wasn't exactly 880, but it was around that figure, right? Um, so, I, yeah. So it makes sense that if you're saying it's 750, right? Because then it, it was less than that. So I was saying 800 as a, as a benchmark just from memory. But, mm. you know, I remember it being less than 750. So that makes sense on that, that note, right? And so they did. They took me to court over it. And, and I, I, I could show you right now. Like I could pull up my phone and show you the emails. The only thing mentioned was, can you please provide me? This is the entire engagement. Oh, engagement's the wrong word. That screwed me in court too, by the way. <laughs> right? Um, you know, but the, when I think of engagement, I think about two things coming together and even just talking to me is, is an engagement. But then realizing that probably was a bad strategy going into a courtroom. But, <laughs> right? having a chat to these individuals, the only thing that was expressly mentioned, there was no mention of cost. It was just an email. They said, could you please provide the lease agreement so we could review it and provide you a more meaningful estimate of costs. That was their exact words, nothing else. And so then I've gone and done that and then bang, okay, professional engagement has started and now we have the right to bill you. So that was the circumstances surrounding it. And I only know about that act because they had actually mentioned it in their evidence. Mm. So they were like, oh, well, it's here. Well, it was part of their, their not the particulars, but the, in their writing, right, in their submissions. And so that to me just blew my mind. How did it go? Did you end up? Well, we've already had a few discussions about me with strategy. You're going to love this, right? You're actually going to love this. So... <laughs> <laughs> thinking back to it, I said uh, it took me a little while to actually realize. But what had happened, we didn't have a magistrate, we just had a small claims assessor. And I had put in this whole defense, you know, particulars, submissions, witness statements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I had everything, right? As you do. Self represented, I didn't get anyone involved. I was already burnt. I didn't want to get burnt again. I was like, I'm not going to get another solicitor to deal with this. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've had a bad experience. I'm just going to deal with this one myself. 
I noticed on their statement of claim that they had put my personal name on the statement of claim and all the documents that they had prepared. But the lease agreement I had submitted to them and the email I sent it from was business. It was Vesuvio Software Proprietary Limited, mm. right? Which is an old business at the time. And so I went and I was really quick to submit. I think maybe about two, three weeks into this, I went, oh, just light bulb moment really struck me. And I went, why am I going to court? And I went, this is a business matter. I'm a little confused. Why am I like, you know, if I, I'm the director of the business, don't get me wrong, but I never signed a guarantor with them or anything like that. The only time that I'm liable as a director is if I take on debts that I can't afford to, to pay or if I don't pay employees wages or super, you know, tax, et cetera, and so on. That in terms of, you know, what I'm obligated to do as a director of a company, that doesn't fall under this category. So I put in an amended defense. Salon, you're going to love this better. Let's hear it. <laughs> I love it. I, I really took him to town, I'm telling you. So I walked in there with my amended defense, had it all approved in the online court, et cetera, and so on. Ended up going into the actual courtroom. The assessor says, all right, so what's the update? What's going on? And I said, assessor, um, I, I don't know who the hell these people are. She was like, Mr. Svetkoski, please. She goes, we've been in this courtroom just four weeks ago and you were raving on about all these different things. Yeah, and she goes, you know, what's, the, what, what's the, the nature of this now that you're saying you don't know who they are? You clearly recognize them. And I said, you know, well, assessor, it depends on which capacity you're asking me. If you're asking me in my personal capacity, I have not needed any personal, uh, you know, legal advice or needs in my personal capacity. However, if you're asking in my capacity as the owner and, and, and director of Vesuvio Software Proprietary Limited, which is the lease agreement that the other party, the applicant, has submitted, then I might know who these people are. And then she goes, all right. She goes, cut it out. What are you saying? And I said to her, I said, well, Assessor, the statement of claim expressly mentions my name personally, including my personal e email address. Right, which I, I provided to the court in, in the process of all of this, right? Um, and I said, but the thing is, because this is a commercial matter, I said, be very happy to oblige in, in conversation and in going through particulars with both parties and yourself if this was a business matter. But because this is, has to do with me personally, I have no idea what all of this is about in my personal capacity. And so then... <laughs> The assessor's just got this smirk on her face. She's like clearly hiding the fact that like she just went, oh, he just undid everything that you're trying to do. Uh, like this one guy's outsmarted the solicitors. And mind you, they've got firms right across the East Coast. Wow. So they're, not, they're not just one small firm. They were a big firm. So I outsmarted them. They went, bang, yep, okay, that, that case is in the can, et cetera, and so on. They tried to start a new case with the company. So we went back to the courtroom and I said, Assessor, I'm really sorry. In my business capacity, capacity, I don't know who these people are because all their documents had my name on it. Wow. <laughs> so I got them in an infinite loop of not being able to take me to court. It was the best thing that ever happened, man. So that's, that's wow. really good. I have to say I'm very impressed. Well, thank you. <clears throat> very impressed. Because like one of the first things us lawyers do is find out 
who the other party is. Mm. Who are you bringing them to court? Is that the correct party? That's like the most fundamental part of any like dispute matter who mm. you're dealing with. And for you, who's I, I, I assume you're not legally trained, for you to pick that up and run that in court, I'm very impressed. You really should be a lawyer. You really should. You want to endorse me? Oh, well, let's let's talk about it after. It sounds good. <laughs> well, I know these RPL providers. Maybe we work for six months and they'll sign off on a certificate or something. Oh, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll talk it about out. it. Work it <laughs> we'll out. Work it out. But yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's really good. That's awesome. It, while you're telling that story, I was actually thinking, are these people actually lawyers? Like, are they actually lawyers? Because that's so fundamental. And mm. that just reminds me of a... One of my friends who dealt with a lawyer, mm. only to find out that person was actually not a lawyer and was oh, actually a scam. You're kidding me? Yeah. Like, I, I can't remember the uh, the exact story of it, but it was along the line of they engaged a lawyer for some sort of work, nothing really happened, and then the so-called lawyer decided to chase for costs. Wow. And then my friend had to go and look at whether this person is actually actual lawyer by looking at the law society register and didn't find a detail and then ultimately they reported it and then law society took it upon themselves to investigate who this person was good on your mate for looking at the law society register like you know register because like you know what i mean like anyone who wouldn't know better you know would just pay it yeah you know what I mean? that blows my mind this is the thing right you know, like, and I'm glad we're having this conversation because, and I know for you, you said that, you know, you're, you're focusing more on property and things like that. I'm actually looking for someone that specializes in that, that space because of some upcoming things for myself personally, you know, and it's really heartwarming to hear, you know, just, just what exactly the values are that you represent, if you know what I mean, because I have been burned so many times and now I'm telling the rest of the world that I've been burned too, right? So it's like, hey, watch out. So, you know, it's really comforting to hear that, you know, it, speaking to a lawyer that actually genuinely cares, you know what I mean? And like, where does that come from anyway, Salon? I think it might come from my uh, education background um, because being a teacher, you got to have to, to teach your students, you actually got to care about them. Hold on that- a minute. You said you, so you were a teacher. Yes, yes. So prior, prior to okay, hold on. We, we've got to we got to flip it. Did you mention that at the start? I don't think you did. Uh, not from the very. Oh, can't remember. Not from the very start, maybe. No, I don't think you did. So like from that, that's really interesting. So how long you've been like in the law sort of department for, and how long you've been in law just generally? About ten years. Yeah, ten years. At least ten years. Yes. Jeez, you look like you were born yesterday, man. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> ten years of legal background. That's fantastic. So before that. Well, before the legal experience, you were a teacher. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I was a high school teacher. Right. Uh, did that. Well, I taught for about seven years, but in terms of qualification, I'm a high school teacher. Please don't tell me you specialized in math. No. Oh, okay. Thank That's you. my worst subject. Oh, really? That's my worst subject. And what did your parents say about that? Just out oh, of curiosity. They, 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 they gave me that. Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%. As they do, like, I grew up in Western Sydney, right? So it's all very mixed and diverse cultures. And that was, for me, especially Asian parents, they were really hard on that sort of stuff, man. Especially math. Math was a really important one. That's the only thing they can, like, do well generally. Yeah, yeah. So how does someone like you go from being a teacher to becoming a lawyer? Like, that's a big jump. Like, we're talking opposite ends of the spectrum here, right? So right through that. Yeah, I have to say, um, I really did enjoy teaching. 
I taught it for roughly seven years. And it wasn't until I started teaching at a high school, at an actual high school. I think I was about 20, 21, 22. And some of the students were like 17, 18, you know, years old. Getting ready to move on to the next part of their life, career. Yeah, that's right. And um, one of the main things that, that struck at me is when looking at the syllabus or what you're supposed to teach a student, it's not just the, the academic side of it. It's also about how to be a person, how to be a human as well. Mm. And I felt like I did not have enough life experience to be teaching someone who's just, you know, less than half a decade younger than me. Mm. So that that got me thinking and that really prompted me to look outside of teaching and see what else I can do, what else do I need to do. Mm. And then um, this is going to be funny. Like I, I had no idea what I was going to do at that time. I went to UNSW, grabbed a job guide. Okay. I flicked through every single page and I had a look at every single profession that was listed there. And the only thing that gave me a bit of spark was law. And that's when I got in there. Why did it give you a spark? Good question. I think it's just the idea of being able to help people um, in, a, in so many different ways. Mm. Um, and I think while doing education, while doing uh, my high school teaching degree, some, there's a couple of things that, I think they mentioned there are three pillars to society. There's education, there's health, and then there's rules and laws. Mm. So I thought, oh, I think that's the real part of the reason why I decided to go into, into law. Mm. I get you. So helping people. Yes. That's a good reason to go into the practice. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Like I, I actually genuinely know of a few people that were like, oh, it's good money. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, I see. And that's the thing, right? So they, they go, oh, it's good money, it's good money. They get all excited, um, you know, and, and that's kind of the reason they go into it. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, everyone needs money, but that's their primary reason. So when I look at like my top three values, it's like it's family. Um, family is my number one value, realistically speaking. And so for me, it's when I do bring on clients, it's always... It's like family. So there's everyone joining the family. And, and once you're in the family, I, I, I want to look after everyone. You know what I mean? Which is really hard moving from like someone who works in the business to on the business. And mm. just, you know, it's very hard to do that when you're so invested in your clients. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. And, I, and I'm sure you'd probably say share that same philosophy, right, with the relationships. That's right. I think that's part of like how you can actually make a business grow. Like you just have to show that genuine side. Like you actually care about what they what they need what they want and you try to deliver it mm. that's the only reason why they probably will come back or recommend someone else to come to you mm. well look you, you've been doing this 10 years plus right so is it 10 years in, in law right not 10, 10 years at your last job 10 years in law yes yeah. so i think i've been practicing as a lawyer for nine years no before that i was volunteering okay yeah volunteering as a at a at a law firm so altogether at least 10 years. Can experience. we talk about the volunteering side of things? How did you manage that? Like, Oh, so as, as law students, there's a part of the process where you've got to do some volunteer. Well, you don't have to be volunteer experience, but you've got to get some experience. Mm. And quite often it becomes like a volunteer experience. Mm. So back, back then when I started, it was very hard. It was, it was very well known that it's very hard to find a job as a lawyer, as a graduate. Mm. Um, most job application requires a lawyer with at least two years of experience before they'll hire them. 
So if you didn't have any experience, you're pretty much, it's gonna be very difficult to find a job. Mm. So I actually went around to different law firms, went in there, knocked at the door and go, hey, I'm a law student, I want some experience, can I volunteer? And then through that, I was able to develop that experience early on while I was studying law. Do you think that's an important part? Like if, if someone's sitting here now, they're looking at a professional career, do you think it's important for them to sort of say, hey, you know what, if you really want to get a good job, if you really want to get your foot in the door, maybe you should just go out and get experience and not expect to be paid for it? I think that comes with any any job that you take seriously. Like if you really want to get to know an industry, you might you might need to actually just put in that hard yard, that put in that bit of time to go in there and volunteer your time to to learn about it. I mean, ideally, everyone wants to get paid for doing work. Of course. But when you don't have the experience and it's hard to get in, you might need to just put in that bit of extra, extra effort there too. Mm. It's kind of like, you know, it's like kind of like that person that sits on the sidelines, you know, like they, they, they never get on the field, they never train, they never do these things. It's like a football field, right? And they just sit there and they're a bench warmer and they're like, hey, I should be paid. And you're like... Yeah, but like, you're not even doing as much as the water boy. How, how do you expect to be paid the same or, or even, even partially less if you don't have the experience or the talent or the knowledge? It's only, if in my opinion, I like if you put a, you know, I've bought a lot of books, Solon. I've bought a lot of books. I haven't read a single one of them, <laughs> right? So for me, it's practical learning. Like if it's theory, it doesn't go, go down with me. Practical you know, is, is the only way I've actually ever learned. Even through high school, it was actually really hilarious. You know, I, I never did schoolwork. I never did homework. Um, you know, fun fact, I've said it on the podcast before, but when I was 15, I used to jump the fence to school to go to client meetings. Wow. And then jump back in. Um, so I was never interested in the theory. Whenever it came to assessments, I didn't have a choice, right? Where you're in a room for two hours and you can't leave until they say so. When it came to assessments, smashed it. Like um, they used to put me in a separate room because I thought I was cheating. Wow. Yeah, I swear to God. But because I, everything that I looked at, so if they pulled out a book and it was about geography, I'd, I'd seriously, I'd just go watch a YouTube video about it. Same topic. And I'd watch a YouTube video about it. I'd, I'd watch and I'd listen while I was doing something else and consuming the information. Gosh. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And then the, the sad part was, um, you know, say you did geography and you're like year nine, year ten, in year eleven and year twelve, if you took geography, which I did, um, it was really strange because I, I never actually learned anything new. It was the same topics, but they just elaborated into it a little bit more and started diving deeper into economics and all these other things. And so it was like, yeah, I got that before I put the pieces together. You know, I worked it out in my head. No, 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 everyone's the same as me, but I'm very much so a practical learner. So how can you expect to be good in your craft and what you do if you don't, you know, roll, pull up your socks and say, yep, I'm going to go volunteer and learn how to do this stuff. You know what I mean? Would you agree there? Like, is that probably what really kickstarted your career in law? Is that? Or? I, I think that definitely gave me the, um, the way through the first hurdle, which is to get some experience. Mm. Um, yeah, def- definitely. Without it, I don't think I would be in my current position right now. And what did you, going back to high school, what did you teach in high school? What was your primary subject that you taught? Well, I majored in English and history, but I taught casually all sorts of subjects from maths, which I hate, to sewing, which I have absolutely no idea about, mm. and everything else in between. Sewing. 
Sewing. Sewing. Yes. I love it. So the, well, what's that? Textiles, that's right. Something yeah, like textiles. that, yeah. So if, did you make your own suit that you came in with today? <laughs> <laughs> no. I love it. I love it. So it is a nice suit, by the way. Oh, thank you. Is it Aaron Santoni's collection? No. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, good stuff. And for those listening as well, like that's kind of where Salon and I have actually connected, right, is through the, the Aaron Santoni Empire Master, which is what's brought us in to this room today, which is pretty cool. So if you, me- you hear mentions of Aaron Santoni and don't know who he is, then you can go check it out. That's fine. But yeah. So, mate, look, I think what we're going to do now, we've just hit the hour mark, right? We're going to take a short break because breaks are really, really important to recollect our thoughts and, and, and realign what we're doing. So we're going to go for a really quick, short break, five, 10 minutes, not our five, 10 minutes, not the audience. <laughs> they'll, be, they'll be gone for about 30 seconds while we play a bit of an ad in between. And yeah, we'll get right back to it. So guys, we'll see you soon. Hey guys, Dean again, aka Dean, and welcome to the ad break. I wanted to share a personal experience about Royer Mace lawyers. So Salon, who we're interviewing on this podcast right now, just before this podcast, I had a brief chat with him about a very sophisticated, complex property matter. And he's given me a lot of confidence to be able to go forward. I wanted to share that experience with you because I know for a fact that Salon is going to be someone that is going to be in my corner, definitely, especially for property matters. And he's a growing business and so am I, which means that we're a really good fit for each other. I like the interpersonal relationship. I found that with working with other solicitors in the past, it was always just send an email and get the job done. But sometimes that interpersonal relationship gives you more confidence that things are getting done right and that you're being understood. And that's probably one of the favorite things that I like about Royer Mace Lawyers as well as Salon. So guys, have a look. It's royermace.com.au and they make legal navigation simplified strategic solutions for complex scenarios. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from the ad break. You're here with Salon Hugh. And guys, what a it's been actually a really cool podcast so far. And that, that ad break that you just heard, funny enough, was actually an ad for Salon as well, which uh, you know, which is absolutely good timing. It's great. If you guys want to learn more about it, all the details were there, and we'll share more details at the end of the podcast as well. Salon. Yes. Tell me. I'm a guy that loves to be educated. I love being educated. I want to know what's happening, right? So for me, you know, I don't just want you to do the work. I I also want you to teach me what you're doing, not so that I can do it, but so that way I can understand what you're doing and why. Is that something that, that you find to be really important in your firm? Definitely, because part to be a lawyer... Aside from doing the work, you've got to advise the client. You've got to explain to them sometimes difficult concepts in simple ways. And what I find that helped me the most is by educating the client, they actually can understand it a lot easier and a lot better. And it also helps me to understand it better too. So teaching them helps me and them. You know, I, I look at, um, more importantly, it's, it's funny you mentioned something about helping you understand better as well, right? It's also teaching you how to better communicate with people. 
There's a reason, one of the main reasons why Trump won the, the election, right? All the way back, that was 2016, I think it was. Around there, yeah. Yeah. What happened? So you had all of these Democrats that were going around and every time they got on the microphone, they just, they were so sophisticated in what they were saying and how they were saying it that you couldn't find, especially for the everyday person who doesn't have an intellect at that level, they really had to think about it. And I, I always say this to people as well when it comes to communicating in general is simplifying what you say so that everyone can understand. If you think about it, if I say something really intricate, you have to stop and remember what that word means. And so that it loses focus from what you're saying and the impact and, and emotional connection you're trying to receive with people. So what Trump did was he just went around and spoke the most simplest language possible to everybody and everyone could relate. He didn't use these. I swear to you, if you look at every campaign trail he'd ever, he ever ran, he never used sophisticated language. So... It's like the word you use, like fake news, right? Yeah, yeah. You couldn't put it in a... That's the best way to put it. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Like he could have said that so politely and politically, you know, being a diplomat and, oh, you know, I don't appreciate this line of questioning. Uh, I I believe that it may have some malice to it. And, you know, like he might put like something... Like he could have said something like that. But he goes... Fake news. I'm not answering that question. That's really sad you're asking that question. And you see how like the language is just so simple that, you know, no matter what level you're at in terms of your intellect, you understand it. You know what I mean? Would you agree with that? Like, would you agree that that's really important when it comes to, to law? The, oh, for sure. Because like when you're helping your clients, right, they could come from any background. They could be a sophisticated client where you can throw them legal jargons and they understand it like, like yourself. And here you get some people who have no idea and you just got to really like simplify it to afford them so they can actually understand it. And sometimes simplifying it by giving them examples, like letting them know if you do this, this is what happens rather than telling them the background concept ideas behind it. So sometimes just, and maybe simplifying it is not the best way to put it. Sometimes just telling them the practical effect of it, like what happens so they can, that, that's one way to help them understand I get you. I get you. I think that the law is so like, look, for me to say that I'm like, I know everything in terms of definitions and and all these other sort of legalities and things like that. You know, for me, I didn't even understand what statement of liquidated claim. I'm like, what the hell does the liquidated part mean? Right. So for me, I'm just kind of like liquidated claim, you know, like it's, it's so complicated when it comes to law. It is so complicated, especially conveyancing and property. And they've got, you know, pages upon pages, like three, four hundred pages of, of documents that you have to sign off on and you have to read all of that sort of stuff. You know what I mean? So for me, it's like, I don't know, if, if, if I had an engagement with a solicitor, especially for property, and I felt like the only answer that I got was, oh, yeah, there's one, two, three, four, and that's it. And everything else is all good. I would actually kind of not feel confident in what's happening because I'm like, you got all of that, just those three, four things from 300 pages. Like surely there were things that I should know, especially <laughs> if it's your first time. You know what I mean? So I think that's what makes a big difference between um, uh, lawyers 
Oh, well, speaking about conveyancing purely, you have lawyers that charge less than $1,000. Mm-hmm. And you have lawyers that charge $5,000 to do the same conveyance. And I think this is, and what you mentioned is, the, is, is a big factor because the one that charges, say, for example, less than $1,000 would, would read a contract, would flick through it and just tell you, yeah, it's all right, it's good, go ahead. Or they'd be like, nah, just you know, one or two things. Whereas if you go to the other end of the spectrum, like they actually put in the effort of preparing a letter of advice, um, advising you on what this means, what what's the effect of it, and it, that's part of the education journey. Mm, mm, I get you. And do a lot of your clients that do they need that nurturing, or is it just something you provide anyway? I let them choose actually, um, because of the range of clients I deal with. I should tell them straight up. Let me know what sort, what sort of level, what sort of like. Uh, level of service you need it could range from like a uh, when it comes to reviewing contract it could be very high level they they're sophisticated property per investors they've bought like 10 properties already they already know they know but they just want to get that double check mm. so i tell them like look i can go for the main points or what i think is crucial that you need to know that's like a high level review and there's a then there's the other end which is comprehensive legal advice where we go through everything absolutely everything in detail and then we have like one which is in, in between where we do like a conference of like, say, you know, 45 minutes. We go through the main important aspect of it and also answer their questions. So making sure what they want to know is addressed and what then making sure any concerns they have is all dealt with. Mm. What do you think is like, I want to get your thoughts. What's something that a lot of people overlook? So if you looked at you know, your everyday sort of conveyancing contract or anything to do with property at all. What's something that you think is often overlooked in, in property? Like say I'm an investor um, and I am, and I'm looking at property. Maybe I'm starting to look into commercial. Maybe I'm looking at buying a massive parcel of land and subdividing it, whatever the circumstances are. What do you think is the one thing or a couple of things that are overlooked the most? Mm, that's, a, that's a difficult, that's not an easy question. Question to answer. It's you've hard got to ten end. years, right? So ten years of, of everything that you've done, right? What's what's maybe some scenarios that you've been in where there's been some complex, uh, you know, contracts or agreements or circumstances surrounding what you're doing? Like how how did you overcome that? You know. Okay, so speaking regarding with convey, like let's say we're sticking with conveyancing. Um, assuming we're act- assuming we're acting for a buyer. Uh, some of the things that the buyer would need to know is, firstly, the contractual clauses. Um, let's just say, for example, there's a release of deposit clause. Okay, it's starting to become more and more often. Almost every single contract will have that clause. What it what it means is that a deposit can be released to the seller before you even have settled the property, before you even became the owner. Mm. So the risk of the buy, risk to the buyer is that, what if you're put in a position where the deposit's gone and you're not getting the property. Mm. What do you do then? Now, what gets overlooked is there are different, it's not the same clause in every contract. It's all worded differently. It's when a deposit is released, you want to try your best to make sure that it is recoverable. So sometimes you see a, a clause in a contract that says when the deposit is released, it goes into an agent's trust account, which is fine because it's going to another trust account. We can recover that if anything goes wrong. Mm. But if it says the money is released to the vendor 
and then it goes to the trust account, now we have a bit of a problem. What if it goes to the vendor, vendor spends that money and it never goes to the trust account, even if it's meant to. So these little, like for example, these little things, this is just an example in terms of a contractual clause that a buyer should be aware of, like these little wordings, like what you might, what seems okay may not actually be okay. And they are so hard to understand because they are, like it's kind of like, I, I like to think of contracts like creative writing. It is exactly that. It is very arbitrary. And, and that's why you have, and like for everyone listening and you'd agree, that's why you have a definitions, literally pages full of definitions of what things mean because they will put it down to interpretations, mm-hmm. you know? And so that, that, that's the part for me where it's like not, you know, like how can, how can a solicitor go over, oh yeah, contract's fine, when everyone has their own sort of style of writing, if that makes sense. Exactly. And um, one thing good about that you mentioned contract is, a lot of people think if it's in the contract, they have to follow it. Mm. But that's not always the case. Mm. You can have clauses in a contract that's actually illegal, not enforceable, and people don't know about it. Mm. And I've experienced something like that myself, and I had to had a situation dealt with um, along that line. You see, and that's... I wonder, it just makes me really wonder how many people are really been taken for a ride in Australia because they don't have good legal counsel. Oh, must be like many, heaps of people. You like know? Every contract should, do, should be just, well, you should at least review it yourself first. Mm. And then if there's any complexity to it, get someone to help you. Mm. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. And that's, I get, you know, it's, I'm, I'm kind of dumbstruck, right? Because I'm actually just, it's it's actually really made me think about it how many contracts are out there that are illegal you know what i mean how many of them are are there that you know where people are doing the wrong thing and just try to get away with it mm. you know what i mean and, and like you know the people that are preparing those contracts should know better right oh that's the that's that's the interesting thing sometimes people do it deliberately sometimes mm. they sometimes they don't know or sometimes there's actually been a law change and mm. then what was actually okay became not okay and has been updated. Yeah. So like a good example would be penalty clauses. Okay. Like, you know, if you default in a payment or you delay in something and you're up for penalty payment, most of the time, or depending on the wording, that penalty clause is not enforceable. They, can't, they actually can't charge you for that penalty fee. What kind of scenarios? Like, so you, you were mentioning earlier about, or just, well, not earlier, just now really, you, you were mentioning about um, you know, holding deposits, right? Or, or sorry, releasing the funds to to the vendor, for example, and making sure it's recoverable. Is that common? Is that really common in those agreements? Or Yeah, so sometimes like when a vendor sells a property, they might actually be buying another property as well. Or they could, or, so in those situations, it's quite normal to use that deposit and put it towards another purchase. The only issue is that, you know, how do we guarantee where that money is going? You know, so we just sort of have to make sure it, it goes through the proper channels and into the proper account in case anything goes wrong. Gotcha. Mm. So, Salon, when it comes to property, right? So when I think of property, I just think just general conveyancing. Like from what you're saying and what you have been saying, it sounds like there's a lot more to it than just I am buying and selling a property. I mean, that's all I know as a, like a property investor myself. But for yourself, you seem to know a little bit more about it. There, that's right. So property law is, one aspect of it is the transaction part, so buying and selling. Um, in terms of the, the whole body of that law itself, it covers 
for example, retail and commercial leasing, even residential as well. Other things like mortgages, like where do you put, where do you register your mortgage on a property? When you lend someone money, you want to make sure you can recover that money and how do you get security in property? Um, also, like with strata, strata is a big one too. Like, you know, there's only more and more high rises being built. Mm-hmm. And all, and you know, we're talking about bylaws. We're talking about how the um, st- uh, the strata schemes run. We're talking about building defect litigations. We're talking about also like you know just your normal construction of building and construction of your own home. Mm-hmm. How does that get dealt? So these are all part of property law. And there's another side like de- with development. So it's it's a massive area. And like strata to me sounds really sophisticated and complex. Right, because I'm sitting in now. You're like, oh yeah, bylaws. I mean, I've never owned a property that's required strata, right? So I don't have a lot of like you know a lot of knowledge in that area. But like when you start mentioning bylaws, like is is there the bylaws come under their own sort of like they're enforced in their <clears throat> excuse me they're enforced in their own different way, or is it like something where with these bylaws, there are circumstances where the bylaws could be illegal or is like, you know, run me through that a little bit. Yeah. So every, every strata scheme will have their own set of bylaws. It's like, think of it as your own like rules where mm-hmm. you got to follow and different, uh, different strata scheme may have slightly different bylaws. Like they all start off generally with the standard model bylaws. And then over time they add in special bylaws and make little tweaks and changes. Now, Certain bylaws can be considered, I wouldn't say illegal, but they're more unenforceable. So if they're too onerous, too harsh, too unfair, it may not be enforceable. Who determines that? That, yeah, that Those are determined by, by cases, actually. Uh, there was a case uh, not too long ago, maybe a couple of years ago, about pets. Mm. There was like a bylaw where it says there's, you, know, you cannot actually have an animal, like a pet, uh, um, inside your lot. And then that was, and then the tribunal saw that and decided, nope, this is too onerous, this is too harsh, and basically any sort of bylaw that says that has a blanket ban of pets is considered unenforceable. Mm. But they can limit how many dogs or cats you have in there. They can limit the size of it. They can limit, like you know, they can put limitations there, but they can't completely ban it. Yeah, you can't be in a studio with a Great Dane. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, for there sure. Might, there might even be like an approval process where you got to go through like, oh, I'm thinking of buying this breed of dog. Is this okay? So there's processes set down. So how does that work with renters then? Because like obviously the owners would know the bylaws, but a renter would just be leasing it through an agent. They wouldn't, I mean like me, I've rented a house or an apartment before. I knew absolutely nothing about the bylaws, right? So, I mean, what's the situation there when it comes to renters? Yeah, look, I'm not completely across it myself, but I believe there should be an obligation uh, by the agent to supply you with a copy of the bylaw that's applicable in that scheme because it's not just the owner that's responsible, it's also the occupier, the person living in there that's responsible in complying with those bylaws. So, yeah, if any of your listeners are not sure what bylaws they're um, supposed to adhere to contact the agent contact the owner get a copy mm, yeah that makes total sense hmm man you, you've got a lot of knowledge right have you ever thought about running like a seminar or something um actually uh unofficially i i, I do some seminars okay um, for example as part of like giving back to the community i sometimes have 
seminars that's run by the council at local libraries where it just gives seminars to the public just to educate them. And then on top of that, like with, uh, with certain industries, I should go in there and I should give talks as well. Like for example, real estate agents, I run through topics like uh, asset protection, um, how to deal with difficult solicitors is one of my favorite ones. And just, just things like, oh, and updates with the law. Law is always changing, things always changing. So we're always going to, as part of my value, give me back to real estate agents. I, I tell them, what's happening? What's going on? You should be aware of this. Mm, how do you deal with difficult solicitors? Actually, give me, first of all, give me an example of a difficult solicitor. Maybe something that's happened in the past. Yeah. So just as an example, like some of the agents that complain to me about other solicitors are, these solicitors ruin my deal. They always think of the worst case scenario and scares all my clients away from buying anything. Mm. So I, I, should, I feel for the agent, you know, like it's, it's you know, it's not, um, you know, they've done the hard yard, they got the sale through and then only for it to fall through at the, at the footstep of the lawyer's office. I've had an experience and we'll go into it as well about, so exactly like you said, like how a, a contract is holding up a deal. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into that, but keep going. Yeah. So, so I think what, what might have happened was the solicitor that the client used was overly cautious like, you know, assuming absolute worst case scenario for everything. And that, and that probably scared the, the buyer off. I understand that's an obligation for us to explain it to our clients that, look, these are the risk. But there's always a ways in managing it and advising them what are the risks that they need to be aware of. Like, I never get between my client's commercial decision. Like, I don't tell them what to do. I tell them, like, look, this is, this is what it is. You need to make that decision. You need to make that call rather than this is bad. Don't buy it. Find something else. Mm. I get you. What's it like? Cause, you know, for me, I feel like it feels a little taboo. Like if I don't understand something entirely and a decision has been put on me, I feel like sometimes I feel a little bit, oh, should I ask them? to clarify or yeah sometimes I do get a little bit conscious of it right because then I'm like oh you know maybe they're going to bill me some more and you know what I mean like there's all these things that go through my head and I know I'm not the only one because I've got a few people that I know of that that share you know common thoughts or you know things like that just to in terms of that I think that comes down to your relationship with the with the lawyer like I mean firstly you got to understand what's in the what's in the cost agreement what's considered within scope if you start asking questions that's too outside of a normal conveyance, for example, then it, then they might bill you for it. So, for example, mm-hmm. you're buying a property and you're thinking about tax. Will I get, you know, would I when I sell it, how much tax I got to pay? You know, that becomes tax advice. So that could be out of the normal scope. So the lawyer would naturally then charge you for that sort of advice. But say, for example, if you're saying, oh, I found this property, it's great, but it's got this issue should I buy it or not? That's, that's what comes next depends on your relationship with your, with your lawyer. If your lawyer treats you as just another client and they're just simply dealing with their own obligation, they'll just say, look, I can't answer that. Find, find the answer elsewhere. Whereas, mm-hmm. some, whereas a lawyer who you have a connection or relationship with will actually help you run through the process. Like, look, these are, you know, these are some of the things you've got to be concerned about. And, you know, and I can offer you my personal opinion, but these are just personal, you know, not legal advice. 
So yeah, so I think it just really comes down to who you have as your solicitor, as your legal representative, who can advise you on difficult things. Mm. I want to picture this scenario, right? We'll see what you, you have to say about it. Go for it. So I had a property settlement with, uh, with my ex uh, just very recently too, actually, a couple of months ago, probably a little bit more than a couple, but yeah, a couple of months ago, right? And that dragged on, you know, if like longer than it should have. I wanted to sell like last year, um, you know, in like June. And that would have been great because we would have fetched probably about $150,000 more. But her solicitor turned around and said, oh, no, we have to finalize all these other matters first before we put the property up, up for sale. Right? Um, and so that happened. And I was like, yeah, but hold on a minute. If you sell the house, then the money just stays in your trust account until the, the consent orders are finalized. Right? So it's kind of like, why are we holding up the sale if it's as simple as you holding the whatever the money was in your trust account and that's it? Like, that, doesn't that make more sense? You know what I mean? So, but it, it dragged on and interest rates kept going up and the property didn't sell under the hammer until it was probably $150,000 less than what we could have gotten it for, uh, which is a lot of money, by the way. It's a, it's a heck of a amount of money. So in saying that, when it came to settlement time, this particular solicitor cost us a deal. And the deal was for hire. So the deal was at around 670, I think it was, 670,000 for this property. It's just a block of land, mm -hmm. right? 670,000 was the original offer. Their solicitor, or sorry, my ex's solicitor, refused to remove clauses about so he was in this actual agreement and this is why like the bespoke side of things is important right is so when i went and i was actually looking through all the contracts myself as well where it was getting held up was conforming to building codes but it was a block of land mm. so i was like well why is that even in there what did the clause say oh, just i'm trying to remember exactly what it was it's it kind of it's, it's slipping my mind a little bit but it was along those lines of making sure that the property was in, you know, good, good, good condition, if that makes sense, and that they complied with whatever the building codes were for the for the DA, right, in terms of that area. So there's no modifications made to the property that would then impede on that DA, whatever was approved for the property there. And this was a block of land. Correct. No, nothing on it. That's right. Zero, literally dirt, you know. No foundation, not even digging from plumbing, nothing, absolutely nothing. And there was about maybe five or six other clauses that were in there that were holding up the deal, all of them insignificant. There was another one that was saying, it was actually, this one makes sense, right? And this was protection for the buyer so that if you ever changed your mind through the process, especially if they had gone out to get finance and things like that, that they would be compensated right which is fine because if as long as you don't pull out of the deal then you got nothing to worry about this is a property settlement for between two people you the motive is to sell the property it's not like it's you've been your family home for 30 years and you got senti sentimental value and you're going to come back and you know flake on the deal it was quite literally uh you know it was quite literally just a, a parcel of land so why wouldn't you sell it hmm you know what I mean? Why Why would you change your mind last minute when it's required 
as per the consent orders that were signed that it must be sold by a particular time frame. Yeah. So why wouldn't you take those things out of the, the, the agreement, out of the contract? Did he explain why? Like, did he... Well, they, they kept on saying, um, oh, these were just, these are protections for, for you and protect your interests. Mm. I was kind of sitting there like, well, our interest right now is selling. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> the price, right? The yeah, sell price. Yeah, that's right. And this was, interest rates mm. kept going up every month. So every time, every month it was on the, on the market, the price went down. Wow. So we lost, and this maybe you could advise me here, but we lost, went from 670, the deal fell over. I ended up getting a second opinion um, and we came back to the same buyer and it then sold for 620. Less. So another $50,000 basically knocked off the price Mm. because of someone's inability to determine that, oh no, these aren't that important. So the lawyer, basically the lawyer has made a situation difficult where you couldn't get the sale through and ultimately in the end you got a lower sale price. We were motivated sellers. That yeah. didn't mean I wanted to get even less for it. We already negotiated from 700 mm. to, to, to that price, you know what I mean? It was actually 750 was advertised and we, we signed off on 675 but the contracts held it up. Okay, okay. Look, there's got to be a lot more... Um, facts to it but without knowing the contract it's hard to say whether the solicitor your your previous solicitor genuinely wanted to keep some clauses there for your benefit um but ultimately in the end i just want to know did they actually agree did they end up agreeing to removing those clauses and then the sale went through correct okay all right and did the buyer previously sign a contract earlier Mm. or it wasn't until later it wasn't until later it was the amendments were made yeah, look, it's just one of those unfortunate situations where um, unfortunately, the deal got held up, market price went down, so by the time the sale actually went through, you, they would be buying it at a lower market price. I mean, if the contract was exchanged earlier to show that's a higher price and then another one at a lower price, there might be something there. There might be a, perhaps a claim. So they, they received, yeah, they did. So they did receive the contracts before with the price advertised at 675. But did they sign it? <clears throat> they didn't sign it, no. Yeah, so technically it was never, so in a way it was never agreed to be sold at a higher price. There were negotiations, there were talks, but it was never agreed. Therefore, by the time it was agreed, it was, it was a lower price. So it's one of those there. Yeah, this is where you got to, this, this is where I'm trying to highlight. You want, to, you want a solicitor who knows what you're trying to achieve and would actually look at the practical side of those clauses. There's plenty of clauses in a contract that's aiming to protect the seller, but is some of those protection needed? Like, for example, that building uh, building code clause, that is not needed. There's nothing there. That's right. It's just a vacant land. I would have just been like, uh, or just told my client, look, this clause doesn't serve you any purpose. Let's just agree. Let's give them a win so that things could go moving forward. Mm. Mm, I get you. What's, if you were to narrow down, say, top five things when it comes to, uh, you know, property law and what me as a, as a business owner, a consumer, uh, an individual that's looking at investing in property, all those different categories that I come under, what would probably be your top five, if you don't make all five, it's all good, but top five things to know, right? To know. Five important things to consider. And this is, I do this with marketing too, right? <laughs> Five important things to consider before filling the gap 
which whether it be engaging a solicitor or mm. you know things like that well the first one would definitely be to engage the right solicitor for what you're trying to do mm. um the law is a very big very big thing so you say if you want to go into um buying a property or getting lease your leases sorted you want a property law specialist and a credit specialist in property law for example um because you can find a lot of lawyers and some lawyers do a lot of things but they don't specialize in certain things so if you have a complex commercial lease that's 230 pages at this massive like um, office block you want someone that deals with that stuff you don't want someone who looks at your corner shop sort of leases you know, mm. Just so right. If so, finding so firstly finding the right professional. Mm. So that's why I encourage people to look for a specialist in a particular area of law to deal with particular areas of issues. Gotcha. Um, second thing. Let's go. I'm, I'm keen. I'm writing notes. All right. Let's Se- go. Second thing is obviously trying to um, doing your due diligence. Okay. So when buying a property, you're building and pest reports. You know, thermal imaging reports. Uh, commercial property, you've got to make sure you've got to have, you've got to look at the leases, you've got to look at whether the premises is suitable for what you want to use it for. Trust me, I've seen clients who buy property without knowing whether they can do certain things later. Like they tell me they want to build a deck, but then I ask them, did you find out if you can do it? Mm-hmm. Like what's the process? And they're like, no. So that's the second part, your due diligence. A lot of people get stuck there, right? Because they go, oh, yeah, I'll just put a shed there and I'll put some concrete. That's it. You know what I mean? And like, and so they go and do it because it'll, oh, it'll only take me half a day. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then they come unstuck, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so the due diligence part is very important, making sure that your intended use can actually be used for that purpose. Um, third thing, I would say it's so basic, so basic making sure you have enough money. Mm. And for a purchase, in like, so for example, with a purchase, one thing you've got to look at is the difference between a pre-approval and a final approval. Let me ask you, do you know what's the difference between the two? Mm. I don't. You don't? Not at all. So most people, when they start looking at properties, they go to a bank and they get a pre-approval. The bank essentially looks at your income and go, all right, your income looks great. I'm happy to lend you up to $3 million. Then when it comes down to the final approval, when you actually found a property, they do a valuation on that property and then determine how much of that $3 million that they're willing to lend you. So there's situations where you can borrow $3 mil, you're buying a property for $1 mil, but then when the bank looks at the property, does a valuation, gives you the final approval, it comes out with five hundred k. They don't, you know, so you got to make sure you have the you have your low, your final approval before you get commit into an actual purchase. So mm. making sure you have enough money. You see, the thing is for me, like I've never actually really even really needed a pre-approval for anything. I've always just dive straight in. I'm like, yep, that looks good, and then just go to the bank. So like, I always isn't a pre, with a pre-approval. Don't they still do a credit assessment? Because that's what I've always been worried about. Right? Is is I'm like, oh, if I do if I take that route, then they might check my credit score and then it might affect my credit rating isn't it better if i just go and just do a full approval and take that route and then i know exactly how much yeah maybe that's something you gotta speak to your mortgage broker or your lender to find out a bit more of the process mm. but yeah but the takeaway is really make sure you have enough money i get you mm. i get you so that's what three things now you got a fourth got a fourth let's see 
Fourth one would be, oh, I might be like, prop, prop me. Finger prompt me. you. Yeah, okay. Prompt so me. There's so um, many things to look at. But yeah, trying to find the, the top most important ones. The f- number four, what is something to look out for when choosing a solicitor? And t- so like, you know how I choose people um, to hire based on certain characteristics. What's something someone needs to look out for when speaking with a solicitor to make sure that they do have their best interests in mind? And I'm hoping that everyone listening is choosing Salon, but, you know, yeah, of course. I think one of the best ways um, when you first talk to that solicitor, you can t- you gen- you ge- generally you can tell whether they care. If they care, they give you value. They show you, they, 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 they kind of give you direction and guidance straight off the bat. They don't have, they're not going to give you proper legal advice from the start because in order for us to do that, you've got to become our client before we give you proper legal advice. But you can tell whether they genuinely want to help you by giving you guidance, like general guidance on it. Mm. And if you, sp- if you call up a solicitor and you say, hey, I need this help, what should I do? And they're like, put some money in our trust account first. Well, look at it when you pay, pay us money first. That's when you know like, oh, okay. They, 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 you can see where their priorities are. Yeah, I guess you. All right, that's an interesting one. Because hmm. you know, for me, like I'm a I'm a pretty good judge of character, but it, there aren't like not everyone's a good judge of character. You know what I mean? And that's that's one of the tough parts, right? Is is sometimes like you know you've got people that act. I think that'll probably be one thing that you know I'd love some clarification on as well, right? Is what about the people that are putting on a little bit of a facade, per se? You know what I mean? They look good on the outside, but on the inside, maybe they're not as great. How do you see through the facade? How do you see through the BS? I think it takes consistency. Maybe call them a couple of times. You speak to them today, maybe a little. Like, it's not always a case where you need a solicitor right away. You might call them today. Hey, you know, what are your fees? What do you do? Next day, you might want to call up. Oh, yeah, I've got the contract. Says this. What sort of general guidance you can give me? You know, like it's just seeing how if they if their second impression and third impression is consistent with your first with your first impression. Because if by the third time you talk to them, they're shrugging you off. I mean, then yeah, then you know what sort of people. What sort of the uh, the initial impression was just an act. Yeah, I get you, and. Would you recommend, because you mentioned it just now, right? Would you recommend that if you anticipate in the next 12, 24, 36 months, would you say that engaging or not engaging, it's the wrong choice of words here, right? Got me in trouble last time, remember? Um, But contacting someone such as yourself, would you say that that would be wise to do early so that way you have enough time to build a relationship yes um uh funny enough you say that because as some of my clients are through word of mouth Mm. um they get referred to me quite early and it could be like a couple of months of uh, relationship building before they actually start on the legal journey like Mm. you know they might contact you first and be like hey i'm looking to buy a house what should i look out for I give, I give them the spill, you know, I give them some, you know, some good tips and help. And then when they find something that could be like two months later, they come back. Mm. And during that process, I, you know, they'll give me a quick course, talk to them for five minutes, like no problem. Like, you know, it's just more about making sure that they feel comfortable and they get the help they need. Mm. And what if someone's like, so that, that example's, you know, 
very more specific to people that are new to needing legal advice, solicitors, people that deal with their conveyancing needs, property, strata, etc. What if you're probably a, a well-established and seasoned investor or, you know, or business person and you're already working with someone? What would be a sign for them to consider maybe getting a second opinion from someone like you? I would say when their first, for example, if their first solicitor is hard to reach, then it might be that they're at capacity time to maybe engage with a um, with a second one to just you know making sure that your work is dealt with at a timely manner um, other things to and other times where you want to get a second opinion is when it comes to more complex work okay so for example you got an opinion from one lawyer sometimes you might want a second opinion from someone else just to make sure you know it's all consistent all on the right track and there's nothing wrong with that like it's always good to get a second opinion because first one may not be always 100% correct or you could see things at a slightly different angle um, yeah that's uh, that's definitely the more complex it is the more you want to get educated on it so if it's if it's as sophisticated and complex as you know my future wife <laughs> then you're saying it's probably a good idea to get no I'm kidding no that's cool that's cool I want to go back a little bit Salon they're great great advice by the way some really great pointers uh, for, for our audiences and you know for your new audience as well that's, that's going to be coming from this as well really great pointers to point out and I want to go back a little bit just towards business and, and getting started right I want to revisit that why did you start your own business Oh, that's a bit. That's a little bit of a of a journey. Um, to be quite frank, I never wanted to start my own business. It I, sounds like you just did it in one month and was like, "Yes, yeah, sweet." Like, is so it a journey beforehand that led to starting a business? Is something happened? Yeah. So, I've all like towards maybe seven years in, I started thinking, "Oh, maybe I want to start my own law firm." And at that stage, I was really afraid, like just. The, the thought of losing a stable paycheck and going into the unknown was just very scary. Mm. Um, and aside from the financial instability, I was also scared about what if I don't know enough? Because mm. the more I learned, the more I felt like I don't know. And especially mm. when I was doing my accreditation, um, it just opened my eyes up to like, there's so, so much stuff to property law that it's probably impossible for me to even learn all of it in my lifetime. It's just how big it is. But what really pushed me over the edge to start my own business is last year I was working very hard at a firm, great firm, love it, but there was a lot of work. And unfortunately, my grandfather passed away on the last day of work. Oh, wow. When you say last day of work, like what do you mean? It was last day of until the break. Okay. Yeah. Until the break, yeah, so the Christmas break. So it wasn't on that very last day passed away and just over the break I was thinking what like where's my time going mm. so then as soon as next year started went back into the office within the first week I decided I'm starting my own had it in my resignation letter and I decided to start my own law firm to have more time back and in honor of my grandfather as well because that's one of the things he wanted me to have too mm. Mm. it's a touching story was he like was your grandfather always motivating you and things like that to to start a business or was it just something that you made a commitment to him for 
he he mentioned it. He mentioned it. There's a he mentioned it that you know he would um, he would assist me financially, assist me if I ever want to like start my own law firm. He he just always wanted the best for me. And he's probably aside from my parents, like he's probably the only other person that gave me um, that taught me unconditional love. So he's yeah. always been a very special person to me. Yeah, I get you. Man, I'm really sorry to hear his passing. You know, it's uh, it's touching. This is just recent, right? This is just uh, the this last just Christmas last. holidays. That's right. Yeah, it was just last year. Oh man, that's rough. Yeah, that's rough. It kind of you know, like I can relate to that too. In in some senses, not a lot. Like you know, and you have your own unique circumstances surrounding your relationship with him. Uh, but you know, like even when I went through my separation, it felt really like it really took me back. You know what I mean? And mm. went from you know seven-figure quarter to basically nothing overnight and yeah I, I swear to you like I had a whole heap of staff they eventually had to let them all go I just wasn't in the right frame of mind to to actually run business so you know we all react differently to to certain um, trauma and, and adversities right and in your case like I'm actually really really happy that you found and you had the ability to find uh, you know commitment mm. in that time you know, when a lot of other people would probably take their time to grieve like I did. Took a whole year off. Right? Wow. Yeah, yeah, a whole year off I took. Um, little odd jobs here and there, but I just, I literally took the whole year off. And, but you finding commitment in all of that, what was good for me was I found myself through that break. Do you know what I mean? And what I really appreciate about, you know, what you did is that, number one, you made a commitment, but not just to yourself, but, to your family and to your supporters and, and obviously to your grandfather as well. And I can tell you right now, he's, he's up there somewhere and he's looking down and he's absolutely proud of the man that you are. Oh, I'm sure he is. That's probably why I'm not eating. I don't have to eat cup noodles at the moment. He's, you know, he's bless, <laughs> blessing, blessing me with great clients, great connections and great people to work with. That's right. And you can see that they taught you well in terms of how to foster those relationships as well. Mm. You know what I mean? So if your grandfather is giving you unconditional love, then that means that it's not just your direct parents, it's it's the extended family where that, that's coming in. So that's that's obviously taught you a lot about family and fostering relationships as well. Yes. yes. You know? So speaking of relationships, are we you're single, taken? What's the situation yeah, there? Dating someone. Dating someone. Yeah. Yeah, like dating someone amazing. Yeah. Um, very similar to like my grandfather in a way where also quite a lot of unconditional love, just very supportive person. That's awesome. That's yeah. brilliant. That's brilliant. Has there been any sort of times in your career where you've had to, you know, deal with uh, maybe some other adversities when it comes to relationships or anything? Like being a lawyer is hard enough as it is, long hours, things like that. Well, at least I assume that, you know, the movies make it out to be that way, right? Yeah. Well, all I can say, the, one of my biggest hurdles in my career was um, uh, I was previously engaged with uh, with someone, like marriage engagement. Mm. And unfortunately, that didn't work out. And mm. that really impacted my work. I think for almost a good six month plus, I couldn't work properly. I was doing the basics, the bare minimum to get through. How long were you guys together? Oh, that that particular relationship was five years. Yeah, wow. Five years, then got engaged, and then it just didn't work out. Wow. So it's quite devastated. Um, it's a learning experience. But mm. I, look, I'm also quite proud of, um, while dealing with such a difficult situation, I was still able to carry on and get my work done. 
Yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. It is traumatic, isn't it? Like going through, like you've been together, you, five years is a long time, yes. by the way. You know, when you think about only having, what, let's just say for, for argument's sake, 100 years if you're lucky, you know, 80 years if you're still lucky. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, and, and to think about anything between 5 to 15% of your life is gone and it's been you know i wouldn't say wasted but it, it does it does feel that way at the time right mm. yeah so i mean like i said oh, we've just talked about my separation and everything like that taking a year off so you know I, I can definitely relate to that for sure yeah you know but you learn a lot during those processes so it's not i wouldn't say it disappeared um yeah you definitely have a lot to take away from it so you, you gain something you gain something yeah that's right Tell me a story. I want to hear stories, right? I want to move on to, you know, some client stories without going into too much details. I get it. The whole mm. client, client solicitor privilege kind of <laughs> need to know basis. But I want to know, you know, since March, right, has there been any bizarre circumstances with a client in terms of a particular matter, something complex? Was there anything like that at all? Something complex or bizarre. Yeah. Maybe not since March, but I can tell you about a story from before where yeah. um, it's a, it, I would say it, it's quite bizarre. Um, randomly one day, an elderly man was taken into our office mm. and he, he was saying, oh, I was held captive by these people. And I was like, who, who are these people? Okay. Oh, and he was explaining to me that these people, oh, I found them on the newspaper and... Um, uh, they say they, they look after old people. Right. I was like, okay, all right. That sounds suspicious already. Then he presented some documents um, to me, and I had a look. It was like a, a, there, was a, there was a will, a power of attorney, and an enduring guardian prepared. And just in case of any listeners, I'm not too sure what they are, what those documents are. A will is a document where you decide where your assets go after you die. A power of attorney gives the right to someone to act on your behalf on financial matters. That's right. An enduring guardian allows someone to look after your life, um, make lifestyle decisions for you in, when you lose mental capacity. Mm. So when I review these documents, the, the will says, um, oh, well, backtrack a little bit. Turns out the person, the people that was, that was holding him captive were his landlords. And, and on the will, it says that all his assets when he passed away, goes to his landlords. Right. And the power of attorney says his landlords can deal with his financial matter however way they see fit immediately. So there's, there's a massive red alarm bells going off, red flags, alarm bells going off, something's going off here, something's wrong. And it, the situation escalated, like it really escalated. We had to go to the police station, we we spoke to the so-called landlords and be like, "What's going on here? Why are you t why are you taking all the assets of this person when he passed away? Like, what's you know, what's your relationship with this guy, with this, mm. this elderly man?" And then in the end, like, it got to a point where we had to take these landlords to the tribunal, to the guardianship division, and say, "Look, these are very suspicious circumstances." And and luckily, the tribunal went, "Yep, we can see where we can see." Um, why you brought this matter forward, and they've made an order that the that the tribunal, or well, the guardianship division, would look after the financial affair of this gentleman mm. and put him in a proper nursing home to be to be cared for. Mm. So yeah, that's that was one of the most bizarre. Wait, 
hold on. If I understand this story right, because it's all just clicked to me now. If I understand this right, these landlords put an ad in the paper, as in we look after elderly people like they're an a, you know an elderly home. Like a um, sorry, you just said it. So the my tongue it just went out of my head. Yeah, just look after elderly people. No, yeah, yeah, nursing yeah. home. Nursing home. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Just one of those moments, <laughs> right? <laughs> so they've advertised. These landlords have advertised like it's a nursing home, and then done all these sort of legal agreements and wills on that same basis as well. Yeah, yeah. There's um, um. Well, I don't know what the ad said, but it sounds like they enter into this landlord-tenant relationship, but with this weird arrangement on the side that whatever happens, you you know, if you die, I get what? all your assets. What? I'm sure that's not advertised on the newspaper article. That's probably something that's... It comes yeah. afterwards for sure. Definitely. That's wow. insane. Yeah. That um, is insane. And this happened in... Uh, oh, this actually happened around this area. Oh, really? Yeah. Can't say I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, you know, where our studio is, it's a little bit like a bubble. You know, you're outside and you're like, oh, goodness me. And then you walk inside, it's like walking into a Google office, right? It's, mm. it's phenomenal. It's great. So it's really good. Where's your office based, by the way? Yeah, so my office is out in Circular Key on a Salesforce Tower. Um, oh, yeah? Uh, I have to be, I have to admit, uh, it was a more of a vanity decision. I saw the view and I couldn't help it. <laughs> Oh, mate, for sure. And, you know, I'm, I'm the same, right? Once I see something I like, I'm like, I don't care. I'll work harder. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> That's the attitude that I have, right? So what's what's next steps for you? Like, you know, you've come this far. You've actually progressed faster than you anticipated as well. I've been there, by the way. Um, plan carefully. Plan carefully. So I mentioned Vesuvio software before. Yes. And Vesuvio, very interestingly, um, we grew faster than we could facilitate. And what I, what I mean by that is we actually, we took a stab at the New South Wales government. They built this chat bot. Um, so kind of like the AI stuff that you see nowadays, right? But they had a chat bot um, that they had built out to help people with their, with train timetables and things like that. But they spent about 40 grand on this chat bot. And we took a look and we were like, this could take us like maybe 10 minutes. Wow. Like all they did was every single time you made an inquiry, they'd just take you to a website, which was the Transport Info website anyway. So imagine sitting there and like they're, they're using a platform. It's not like they built it themselves, right? They're using a platform. They spent 40 grand with this other person to build it for them. And it is, you click one button, um, train timetables, and then you went, okay, visit link. Gosh, that's, that, that sounds very simple. I swear, maybe we're both in the wrong business. 40 grand to do that, I was blown away. So what we did was we actually made one that actually has, it was 2016, right? Or 2018, sorry, 2018. Were chatbots like popular back then? From 2016 is when I started with them. Gotcha. Right? So I've been using them for a while. 2018, we actually hooked it up with a bit of machine learning, uh, natural language processing and things like that, which is... You're only hearing about that stuff now in 2023, whereas I was doing it five years ago, right? Very ahead of myself then and everybody else for that matter. So we, in 24 hours, we actually built one that was better that even picked up if you had a spelling error and said, did you mean Parramatta or Cabramatta? That's right? amazing. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole video about it. We made the news. The news spread like wildfire. We were being seen overseas. Like we had clients lining up. We had London City Council 
uh, contact us as well over in London. They wanted us to do all that for us. So we were, okay, we have to do all these processes. Okay, we have to get all these things set up and ready for these people to make sure that these things are okay. Oh, we have to go and um, do sales and actually sell the, the these things to the clients. Oh, we have to hire people to actually do the work. But then it, it all became this massive mess. And it became a situation where we couldn't facilitate the work because the people we were working with couldn't implement it properly or to what we had anticipated or or expected. Um, realistically, we should have been turning away work or, or at least saying we're fully at full capacity. Can you please give us three weeks and, and we'll come back to it. But being a little bit more naive at the time. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> give me the money. <laughs> right. So, you know. We, it ended up all being sorted in the end anyway, but it actually killed the business very quickly. How so? Well, we, we had to, we had a, um, a partner's uh, director's dissolution, mm. so partner dissolution between two people. We're good friends still now, uh, but there was still a bit of heated sort of circumstances surrounding where the business was going and who was responsible for what and this problem and that problem or whatever else. So there was a lot that was going on there. So we ended up, the, the company ended up dissolved. So, but a lot of it, when, when him and I sat down again, not too long afterwards, we, we narrowed it down and we were just like, first of all, we both started this business with nothing and, you know, we've, we've just blown up and trying to figure out how to navigate these really, really choppy seas, right? All this unexpected turbulence. And then the second thing um, was that uh, it was, we just grew too quickly. So I actually featured on a TV show at the time. It's called That Startup Show. And that was one of the things that I talked about. Wow. So, you know, one of the, one of the ladies, she was actually the chief um, human resources officer for a very big global company in Melbourne. And she was actually questioning about it. And I told her, I said, yes, it's our biggest problem right now. And she said, that's going to be the biggest challenge that you have. So... You know, you can back what I'm telling you now with what I said on camera all those years ago, growing fast. Sometimes you need to really pace yourself and, and make sure you're getting the right information, advice and making the right decisions. If you make some mistakes, it's cool. But that'd just be my advice to you, right? Yeah. So, so what did she say was the biggest issue? Was it the getting the right people to do the work? Well, it wasn't just about the right people. You can hire anyone and if you give them some instructions, they can do it, right? Not everyone will do it as well as each other, but generally speaking, you can all make, you know, collective progress. But hiring people to do the work, sometimes you hire people. We had one guy we hired. Oh, yeah, he's a software developer, has this programming language, this programming language, that programming language, has experience with this and that and the other. Turns out all of it was a lie. So you could imagine you've hired this person and they're just sitting there at their desk doing absolutely sweet F all the entire time. You know what I mean? And you've got them because you're so busy with everything else, a month goes by, by the time you actually go back and say, oh yeah, have you done this? They're like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you just got getting paid weekly, no problem, right? So how do those people live with themselves to lie like that? I don't know. <laughs> to be honest, you know, I'm taking a big sigh and a deep breath now because it does, it was frustrating at the time even just thinking about it, right? So, yeah, but what's, what's the plan for you? What's next for you, Salon? Yeah, so, so the plan for me would be to continue to grow the property side and the property law side and then eventually move on to other areas of law as well. 
So I guess each area of law could be seen as like its separate business unit. Mm-hmm. So property, maybe like family, maybe like litigation. Uh, Strata by itself is quite big too. So at the moment, it's part of property, but I can see that eventually stemming out to its own as well. Mm. Um, I always want the business to expand, to grow. I'm looking for for staff. I'm looking for partners to help build this. Yeah, just to help build this business. What's the next one? So you said like, you know, it's property now and you've got all these different pillars of, of, you know, and units that, you know, you're going to be setting up. What would be the next unit you set up? I would say it's next unit would most likely be strata okay that's gonna be the next that's the next big thing gotcha and yeah i was actually wondering sorry it's been burning in my head this whole time you know royer mace he's a brilliant name oh thank right? you in terms of like you know you think holding red lick you think all these other big ones that that are around and then you see here royer mace and it kind of has that kind of sounds like royal right in a way as well so it actually has this really nice premium high quality name to it C- coming from a marketing guy it's a compliment right Royer Mace how, how the hell did you come up with that oh it it kind of came in for different angles like I, I first started thinking about how should I name this law firm I didn't want to go with acronyms I don't want like one two three legal or ABC legal yeah I don't exactly want names on it either because then yeah like, like you know like Solon and Associates. I don't want, I didn't, those don't really, I don't like that. Yeah. I wanted a name that felt balanced. So mm. my first idea was, okay, I want a one masculine sounding word and a more feminine sounding word and put them together. So that's mm. the first basis. And I was trying to find words and then eventually I stopped at Royer and Mace. How'd you get up? Like, but that's the thing, right? So like, okay, I just started an e-commerce brand around Christmas and similar approach, right? Feminine, masculine. And I went Ribbon and Rudolph. Oh, okay. I like that. Right? Seasonal greetings. Ribbon, Rudolph, you yeah. know, makes sense. But that was a lot of, like, there was a whole process to coming up with that. I just kept going through, you know, like, what, what's, I wanted two words. I made up my mind. I want two words, you know, um, and I want to stitch them together. What's the word? What's the name? What, what sounds good, you know? And I, I went through, like, maybe 50 different names and words before i actually went yeah that's the one what was the process for you like we still don't know how you got to roya or mace like how do you get those two words where do they come from yeah so just try to find things that just made just that i like so i quite like the color red okay um and roya i don't you know i've kind of forgotten now but i think it was a british word for uh like a boy's name okay uh, and it also means red as well so that's how I so slowly found that word. And then I continued to dig into it. And I think at one stage I found a meaning to be, um, it might have some like French heritage or something where someone who fix wooden wheels. Mm. So like, you know, legal, fixing. I like the color red, R- Roya. That's the, then I got the first word. Then with mace, um, I thought I, it's, I noticed that in certain courtrooms, like certain people will hold a mace like a, and then in the parliament house, you see Ooh, a mace. Like an actual mace? Like we're talking like a spade, you know, like like that kind of mace or? Like a, like a, like a mace. Like, a, um, like for example, like just the other day at the Supreme Court in New South Wales, like, you know, how every solicitor has become a solicitor. They go through the admission ceremony. Yeah. There, there'll be a person in there that's, that would be carrying a mace, 
right? That that this isn't some kind of World of Warcraft thing, right? It's it's a proper silver looking, yeah, 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 like yeah. a proper proper looking thing, yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. you know, it's tall and everything, um, and yeah, like and also in Parliament House, like you see a mace there, so there's always that. Like, I feel like that's a very symbolic thing to mm. legal Parliament lawmaking. So yeah, hence I got Broya and mace. You know, uh, a branding activity for you so important, and I'll give you an example is um. This uh, that remember that accounting firm that I mentioned to you about mm. uh, earlier, right? So it's Silver and Young, okay. same concept. Yeah, nothing to do with that, but that the just the actual logo itself, the way that it sounded, how it put it all together, and everything else, it was just really powerful, mm. really really powerful branding. Uh, and so uh, my advice to you is there is like if you get the branding right. You can make a little guy like you, I wouldn't say little, you're pretty buff, right? If you're listening uh, on Spotify, you've got to jump on the cameras, it's pretty built, <laughs> right? But, um, you know, having a smaller business appear to be quite large and able to, to deal with the things that you need, right? So if people are looking for the best of the best, you know, the brand is a very important part of that. And already just by the, the name Royer and Mace, it is extremely compelling. Wow. So, yeah. And that's, that's how I determine these things too, right? It's like I always look for, you know, what kind of energy I get. How does it make me feel? And that's where I, I'm able to step into an empathetic position of how others would feel, right? And it's very emotionally compelling when I hear the words. Wow. So, I feel very flattered. <laughs> Yeah, so, no, absolutely, it should be. It's actually a really good name. How long did it take you, by the way, to, to come up with that? Well, I think it took like at least a good month or two. Okay. Yeah, a good month or two before I actually stopped at that. Yeah. I had other, I had other like, you know, ideas as well. I was like thinking, should I go for a more casual name? Mm. And, I, and if I was to go down that path, I would have called my firm, Who Is Your Lawyer? Because my surname's huge. I love it, man. <laughs> there was a guy at my school uh, when I was in high school. He got on his his name was No, NGO. Okay, yeah. So he, he, you know, you get your jerseys and you put your custom name on it and everything like that. Yeah. He actually made his jersey. No one knows No. Oh. So you know, like you know, I, I like that. I like that kind of play on words. It's uh, it's really interesting. So you, you were serious about that one. Oh, I was I was thinking like, oh, maybe if I ever start a second law firm that's meant to be more casual, that's definitely the name. That's pretty cool. I kind of like that too. I think it's a little bit more playful, right? So it's yes. something a little bit more warm and welcoming, you know? So maybe, maybe a family law firm or something. Could be, could be, yeah. Potentially. Yeah. So it's, that, oh, it's not as crazy or, you know, daunting to walk in, you know? That's right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, look, we're, we're hitting the end of our interview, right? Um if there was one thing that you'd want your audience to know about what you do and why, like let's just say the people that are out at home um, that are listening and they're sort of going and saying, you know, I kind of like this guy. Salon's pretty awesome. Like I'd love to work with him. I'd love to find out more. You know, what would be one of the main reasons why they would make that decision? What do you think? Well, I think one of the main thing that they want they they should know is our mission, vision, and our value. So, Royal Mace, I want our mission to be to create bespoke strategies to help our client deal with complex legal problems to ease their stress. 
because having a legal having a problem is stressful going to a lawyer should not be stressful they should be helping you try to alleviate that stress as much as they can and what i see in the future in terms of our vision is at first we want to be the trusted advisor of all things property related and our value to make all this happen is number 1 we respect the law number 2 we protect our client and number 3 we want to foster connections so these are the sort of the, so these are the frames that we work with so i think if someone was to decide which lawyer to use whether to change to another one i think they should look at their their culture their mission their vision their values and see whether it aligns with what they want mm. okay and how can people find you You can find me on um, Facebook, Instagram, my website www.roymace.com.au, or they can call me on my on my telephone. Very yeah, easy, cool. very reachable. Fantastic, and they can find your telephone on your website. Easy, right? or Google Solon Hue. Solon Hue. There's not too many of them. Yeah, it's kind of like Dean Spitkowski, right? They can't find many of them either. That's fantastic. Salon, it's been a really fruitful conversation we've had and I can't thank you enough for coming in because it's been absolutely brilliant and I've learned a thing or two as well, which is really good. That's awesome. Thanks for inviting me. I, you know, very great. Very good experience. I really appreciate that. Guys, for all those listening, whether you're in the car, you're on your way home, you're at home, maybe you're a mum that's sitting at home and thinking about taking the step and making the leap of starting a business. You heard it from Salon, it's not that bad. It was daunting for him, you know, but now here is here he is and he's really enjoying the process. And what's really important is fostering relationships, having values that people can align with and doing the right thing by everyone that is around you and that do business with you. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you at our next episode on the Launch Day podcast. Don't forget Salon Hugh, Roya Mace and Dean Svetkoski, aka Houdini.